trust in you and remember oh and we will not forget you are always with us we will not forget you are always for us we will not forget oh we will not forget you God now by faith and now by faith I hope it's sure our confidence is in you Lord we will sing of all you've done Remember, oh, we'll remember, oh, and we will not forget. You are always with us. We will not forget. You are always for us. We will not forget. Oh, we will not forget. You died. You gave us freedom. You gave us freedom. We were nothing more than slaves. You kept your promise and delivered us from chains. You split the waters and your mercy was displayed. We remember, oh, we remember. You came to rescue. We were lost and gone astray. You died our death. Our sin was buried in the grave. morning carpenter's way if you are interested in knowing how uh, or being interested in like maybe joining the church finding out like what do we believe what's going on here in carpenter's way we're going to be starting a uh, carpenter's way 101 in the library which is right through this door there's a door if you want to go out this you'll go uh, through the glass around the glass over there uh they're going to be starting here in the next few minutes so if you're interested in that go ahead and start heading out there to that uh for all the rest of you why don't you get up on your feet find somebody and tell them good morning Thanksgiving, come to his courts with her. 
everybody I'm only laughing at the way you clapped it's like you know we got we've split our church in three different directions we got a group of people in the library about for our new members class and then we got a bigger group that's home because it rained <laughs> I don't I don't blame you it, it, <laughs> so, yes I do you should be here but I got, I'm getting text messages from people who are watching online so I want to thank you make sure you hit that little give button <laughs> oh man you guys are funny uh, it's good to see you this morning, and uh, I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. The Wilkie clan is growing by one. I know a lot of you saw on the internet. <laughs> they're, they're watching online this morning, so they heard you whoop for them. But hi, hi Zach was just said, congratulations. That's right. And that means Julie and I get a little more money because the moment they get married, <laughs> cutting them right off. So you might see us eating out a little bit more. No, we are we are very we are very excited about Hannah joining our family and her family joining our family and us joining theirs. We were in uh, Fort Worth yesterday, and uh, several were asking where did it take place. It's at the Botanical Gardens in Fort Worth. And that was the first time we'd seen it. It's really wet there, though. There's not much to see, but uh, but it was it was quite exciting, and uh, there it was it was good. We. This, uh, this is a girl we prayed for since Zach was born, and even before his birth, we, we prayed that God would provide our children uh, with uh, a godly mate, and that's what we're excited about, and we're praying that for our Anna as well, so if you have a godly son or grandson, 
She is not watching. She's actually playing in the church. She attends music this morning. So unless you text her, I will not get in trouble for saying that. But, you know, I, 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 I really, and I know Jeff and Alicia feel this too, and, and Chad and Teresa, we, we want to thank you for doing life with us. I mean, you, we have been, and, I, and, and I've, I've shared this with a lot of you Wednesday nights and on personal level, but Julie and I started ministry at 17, so every major phase, phase in life we have done with a congregation. But I was uh, just thinking this morning in my office that we came to Carpenter's Way when my son was eight years old. I mean, it's crazy. That little kid stayed right here by my side. I would come, and we, have, we had a meeting at 7.30, a tech meeting every Sunday morning, and he would stand right by my side at 7.30 and uh, do some stuff around here, and the staff would engage him, and Jeff spent a lot of time uh, learning stuff, and he was called to ministry here, and, and it's just been a blessing, and it, it just means a lot. I, I think we had 300 of you like the pictures yesterday. Just to say congratulations, we love you. And that, I just want you to know what a privilege to be part of the church. You know, Unfortunately, over the past 50 or 60 years, church has been turned into a Sunday morning weekly evangelism program. But boy, the best thing about the church actually is that we do life together. And uh, it's been, man, as far as the staff of Carpenter's Way go, it's been a great weekend. We're super excited. I don't know if you noticed on the internet, but, but Rachel Bonin uh, was just accepted. She is quite the athlete. She actually was born with a soccer ball on her big toe. And was just accepted into a, uh, an elite program in Dallas area that's run by the National Olympic Committee that trains future athletes. And uh, it is a tryout thing, and she was just accepted. So she will be spending 10 weeks this year, 10, 10 training things. That's a big deal. She's like, whatever. Hey, she's still at the pre-marijuana stage. That's that's not, I know, that wasn't, why are you owing? That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. It's just you don't need it at this age, you know? It's kind of cool. But we're excited for you. And, and uh, some of us have been praying hard because she tried out. Don't, just text, text Jeff. He'll explain it. But we, she's been trying out. We've been praying for her. This is really exciting. And, uh, uh, man, we've got to have Christians in every facet. And so she'll be training over the next, I hear my wife laughing. I know. I just want to apologize now for that. I'm not exactly sure why, but apparently it was inappropriate. I asked her permission if I could talk about her this morning, didn't I? Not, not in that kind. I didn't tell her what I was going to say. But, uh, you know, the thing, the thing about the Bonins, too, is, is the other two kids are just as remarkable. I mean, they are doing a phenomenal job as parents. And uh, Gracie's the smartest kid in the whole universe and will run the world at some point. And uh, Micah is going to is going to be going off to college next year and studying to do stuff that may lead may be involved ministry and and uh, you know and, and that's just I, I don't know I know you watch Chad and Teresa and Mia the future model of anything and everything <laughs> have you ever seen a kid more more uh, photogenic but all of that is to say that um, in many cases a pastor's life is is so in a test tube and you have to live so scared, and, and that affects kids. You have allowed us the freedom to live real lives and allow our kids to struggle and make good choices, and we want you to know it means a lot. It is a privilege to raise kids at Carpenter's Way. Right, Chad? It is, because you love on our kids. And, uh, and, and uh, thank you. You have played a big role in, in the Wilkie family and how you've loved on Zach, and uh, we look forward to many, many more opportunities to celebrate with you, and, and we celebrate your families as well. We're all in this together, good or bad, right? 
good or bad. So thank you. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you for that. Keep praying for our kids. We pray for yours, and uh, we'll see what the Lord does. I do want to say one more thing in light of this. We have, and you know in January, or it was just a few months ago, Julie and I started, um, there were, uh, I think Connie came to us and said, we need something, uh, Dubos, we need something for young married couples. And we began around February or March praying about it and what, who could we get that would lead that? And the Lord just led Julie and I to lead that. And uh, so we have, we have about uh, seven or eight couples that come over to our house every Sunday night, and we study the Word together. i got to tell you something. Don't listen to the junk on TV. The next generation are just as godly, actually more committed to ministry and people and the Word of God than you can imagine. We leave every Sunday night so encouraged. So don't believe the hype out there. It's going to be just fine because the Holy Spirit inhabits His people. And we're praying for you, and we're spreading them out. As you see things on Facebook where our kids, our church kids, are going off to, uh, to Christian and secular universities. Um, you know, when they go off to A&M or Texas or Blaine or wherever they go. Man, we need to pray for those kids. We have trained them, we have prepared them, and we need to pray. Even Angelina here in the area, we need to pray for them. The pressure is great, the ministry is even greater. So be praying for our kids as we continue to raise our kids together. And, and uh, we have had a harvest of new babies at Carpenter's Way this last week, right? A, a bunch of new babies, and uh, so pray for them because it just starts over. Every week we get a new one that we get to disciple, and that's our goal. So um, enough on that. Let me re uh, take your worship guide real quick. Let me highlight some things. Chad already mentioned we have a new members class going on in the library. You can still sneak out and go to that if you'd like to find out more about Carpenter's Way. Um, that will go until 1145 this morning. Uh, please notice also an insert. These are our missionaries we're praying for this week. I want to highlight that uh, Blake and Christina Davis, that is Students International. We, uh, uh, we go to Guatemala and work with them. Our Guatemala team works with them. You, we need you to pray special extra for them right now because uh, they are transferring. He's transferring after the end of the year to a pastorate in Michigan. And so we want to pray for Students International, a ministry that we support and we will participate with them in the future continue to that we'll be looking for replacement for them um, in Guatemala so please be praying for the Blakes take these when they're in the worship guide put them on your refrigerator and remember them as you walk by it uh, remember to pray for each other uh, as there's an insert in there about that um, women's Bible study groups starting up there's information in the worship guide for that so I think that's all that I need to mention I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for an offering uh, for those of you who are visiting with us this is not for you this is for those who attend here regularly. Um, the offering goes to pay, obviously, for the bills here and the staff salaries. But we also support uh, the mission organization, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. They have about 6,000 missionaries globally that, that reach people for Christ and plant churches. And we support that as well as 14 missionaries of our own, like the Davises, that we, we support as a church. We're very into missions uh, and... and uh, um, so that's what our offering goes for. So one more time, if this is not your home church, just pass the plate as it comes by. We don't want you distracted by money. Uh, this is our responsibility as a church family to take care of these things. We're just glad you're here. So let's commit the rest of this time to the Lord. Father, we love you. Um, we thank you for all you have done for us. I thank you for this morning's text in Second uh, Samuel. It's really good. So I'm pretty excited about what we're going to learn to stay together this morning. I thank you for the time and the word I had this week. Thank you for reminding me of how gracious and merciful you are. And I ask you this, Lord, I ask you this morning that you would prick the hearts of your children. Uh, for those that need to be convicted, I pray you would convict. For those who need to be comforted, bring comfort. And for all of us, refocus us this morning on you. 
We thank you for those who have brought into this place. We've got some new visitors, and we pray you'd encourage them. Our hope and our prayer is that they will fall in love with you, Father, having been with your kids. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Jesus Christ, always secure. Amen.
be lifted high. There is no other like you, Jesus Christ. You are my story. Jesus, I Surrender, oh. 
let's pray together. Father, hear our song and accept it as a prayer of our heart to you, Father. Um, take us, Father. We give it all to you. Do as you want to do. We bow before you and ask you to lead our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the most powerful evidences to me personally that the Bible can be trusted is that it does not, um, while some like to say historically that Christianity was a religion built by 12 men uh, that were trying to hoard religious power and commitment, um, there's a powerful evidence that that's not true. And the evidence is the scriptures themselves because it, it, is, it is the only religious book or even historical book that does not protect the reputations of its heroes or heroines. For instance, uh, Noah, after nearly two centuries of faithfulness to God with building an ark, getting in the ark, uh, during the great flood, one year after successfully trusting God with all of that mess, he has grown grapes, he's fermented them, and he gets drunk. And while he's drunk or, or sleeping it off, Scripture infers that one of his sons sexually abuse him. Uh, Jonah the prophet, he doesn't want to minister to the people God called him to bring redemption to, and in fact is forced by the hand of God to do so. And at the end of the story, God actually asked Jonah, why didn't you want to come? And he said, because I knew you to be a gracious God and you would show redemption to the people of Nineveh. Well, that's not how you write yourself in history if you want to be revered. Or Peter, he not only denies Christ publicly three times, but he actually blasphemes and cusses, curses in order to emphasize that he wasn't a follower of this guy who was under arrest. But later in his ministry, even later in Acts, it shows that he tr struggles with prejudice. And in fact, Paul has to rebuke him publicly because he refuses to eat with anybody that's not Jewish. So prejudice Peter, Saul, Paul, is the persecutor of the church who finds life in ministry so difficult that in Philippians, he actually longs for death. Elijah, well, one of the most famous, if not the greatest Old Testament prophet, struggles with serious clinical depression. And Moses, the one that the Jews, even to this day, pray that God would renew or send someone like him in the spirit of, of Moses, uh, committed Jews still pray for a new Moses, flatly was rebellious against all things Jewish and didn't even choose to circumcise his boys. And David, the man that God calls a man after his own heart, well, look for yourself. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army, Joab's the, the general of the army, he sends Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroy the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So to give you some context, David is approximately 50 years of age at the time. Uh, he is well into his 33-year reign over the United Kingdom. That is, the 12 tribes have all come under his reign. He has been battling with this group of people, actually the Jews have, for well over a hundred years, the Ammonites, were actually more accurately several hundred years, 
And the Hebrews have finally backed them into their main city. The only city apparently they have left, the main city and fortress of Rabbi, it is the la uh, Rabbah, it is the last stand of the Ammonite nation. Joab has the city surrounded. And so he's moved his men back far enough so that those, the, uh, the Ammonite warriors can't throw things down on them or, or shoot fire down on them. They're at a safe distance and they're actually waiting them out. It's just a matter of time until they run out of water and food. King David, seeing what's going on and realizing it's going to take a long time, has decided to do something that kings normally did not do. And that is return to Jerusalem and wait there to hear word that they would have defeated the Ammonites. It's April or May of that year when, verse 2, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she's Bathsheba. No connection to her bathing, by the way. I know that's a meme, but her name has no connection to what she's doing. Bathsheba, that's the only joke I'm going to make this morning, so I hope you appreciate it. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So here's what we know about that day. It's late in the day. David takes an afternoon nap, and he gets out of bed, and he decides to walk out on this palace roof overlooking the city of Jerusalem that he has rebuilt. It's not the first time he's done that. It tells us that he's overlooking the city of Jerusalem when he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant back in. David liked to peruse his good work. He liked to enjoy what God had allowed him to do. And he's doing that this day when he sees an unusually beautiful woman within sight of his palace balcony bathing herself. Rather than turning and going on with his business, he inquires about her. And what did he find? Well, number one, he finds out that she is one of his mighty warrior's daughters. Let me let you know what that means. When David started out, you remember that he went alone and he ran for his life in caves. During that period of time, there was a group of irre irreputes who joined him and became warriors for him, for him from other places in the land, non-Jews. They were not great people, but they were people willing to fight for David, and they submitted themselves to his authority. This guy is apparently one of those. The father of Bathsheba is one of those men. He is, I've seen in Scripture and other places, as one of the 37 most faithful, committed, closest to David, most trustworthy warriors. And he probably, I can't prove that, but he probably was with David for well over 30 years from the cave-dwelling days. The father of Bathsheba was somebody so close to David that he was actually given a house within sight of the palace. Just to give you an idea, David's palace would have been high on the side of the hill, Around him would have been the homes of those who were considered to be his private protect and guard. So when he goes out on his palace balcony and he looks down and he sees this young lady bathing, that is one of the people that is related to his fiercest warriors and most trusted. Iliam is her father, one of David's closest friends for, for decades. But that's not all. She is also one of his present best warrior's wives. We know this because... His home would have been the one that she was bathing on. So her husband, Uriah, is also one of his most famous, faithful, most intense warriors, most trusted warriors. Finding these details out did not move David to walk away. Like David had done with the Ark of the Covenant when he chose not to obey God's laws during the time he chose to carry it, but he puts it on top of an ark, David chooses to ignore God as it relates to someone else's wife. To be clear, 
as awesome as David is, as amazing as this guy is, as much of a hero that we find him to be, sometimes you can look at his life, and this is one of the things I hope we, you have noticed as we've gone through 2 Samuel, is sometimes David has the tendency to think that he should not be hindered by the restraints of God's law, that his position means that some of God's laws don't apply to him. Keeping it real also, David loved God. That's not in question. David wants to worship God. Not in question. He sang what we sang this morning. I surrender all. All of those things were true about David. But at times, David wants what David wants more than he wants to follow God's clear instructions for him. And people, as a result, like Uzziah, like Abel, like Ananias and Sapphira, people die because of it. Let's look on. After inquiring about the woman he watched washing herself, David is told this in verse 4. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam. He is one of David's mighty, mighty men. And the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Knowing these things, I add that. Taking that in, David still sends messengers to go get her. And when she came to the palace, he sleeps with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her period. Then she returned home. Later, when, Beth, uh, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. To be clear, David knew the scriptures. He studied them daily, and it doesn't take reading much of the Psalms to realize it was one of his favorite things to do. He talks about meditating on God's law night and day. That's what kings did. That's what kings were required to do. That's what David did. He studied God's law. He was fully aware especially of the summation of the law we know as the Ten Commandments. In case you're not clear on that, the Ten Commandments are basically a summary statement of the rest of the law that we know as De uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, some is in Numbers, some is in Exodus. But those laws are summarized in the Ten Commandments. He knew that the Ten Commandments instructed him not even to desire another man's wife. He also knew that he should not commit adultery, and yet he did both without a thought. The text doesn't even say he wrestled with it. Without even a thought about how this would affect the men whose, uh, who, who uh, Bathsheba's life was wrapped up with, without thinking about what they had done for him, without giving any thought of what his own servants would think, his own palace guard would think, when they would bring her to him. David writes off all that's responsible simply because he thought she was beautiful. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this today, but I want to remind you that Satan isn't as powerful as you're often taught he is, especially in the church. Satan is just a liar. He's a deceiver. He is, a, he is full of crap, but it's the kind of crap that makes you think you could grow an apple off of it if you put it around your tree. I want to remind you of what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. When Eve was looking at the one tree she wasn't supposed to eat from, and she starts talking with the, the serpent about it, it says that after the conversation, he couldn't make her do it, a classic thing that the church likes to say, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. It says that when she saw that the fruit was beautiful and delicious, and that it was desirable to make her wise, that's when she ate from it and then turned to her husband and gave to her. There's no difference between a piece of fruit here or... or uh, Bathsheba, in this case, Satan gets us to take our eyes off of all that God has given us, 
I, I want to remind you also that, that at this point, it's probably significantly more, but David has at least seven wives at this point. There's plenty of women. This is not just a sexual thing. This is a power thing. This is a submission thing. This is the same exact sin that David commits when he puts the Ark of the Covenant after clearly being instructed that you don't put it on an ark, you carry it. Nobody touches the ark except the high priest, and when they touch it, it's by a pole. David is doing the exact same thing. He goes 90% in with trusting the Lord, and 10% destroys him and his family. That's what he does here. And now she's pregnant. And as any clear-thinking, powerful man would do, he decides to solve this quietly and in his own way, a way when no one else would know what's going on. Verse 6, Then David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, Go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah. I think it was one of those like bath things, the little powdery thing. He sends a gift with him after he left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. My question for you to think about this morning is, why did he go sleep with the palace guard? I know you're going to get the answer here in a second, because he didn't feel like he was worthy to go home and be with his wife and enjoy his, his things while his boys were out fighting. But let me tell you another reason. By sleeping with the palace, palace guards, he was taking a post. He was protecting David, the man who slept with his wife. So he stays with the palace guard. Verse 10. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and he asked, What's the matter with you? Classic man move. Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How can I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. In case you're not sticking with me in the story or you've heard it too many times to really be moved by this, Uriah the Hittite was a better man than David. He was a better man. How could he in his own brain, go home and enjoy his life while his boys were out fighting. He wouldn't even enjoy what was his while others he had fought with were out in the fields fighting, putting their life on the line. Well, David, the man after God's own heart, he had no problem taking something that wasn't his while his boys were out fighting. The plan one had failed. David would need to cunningly think of something else. And he was cunning. Verse 12. Well, stay here today, David told him. And tomorrow, you can return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner, and he got him drunk. <laughs> this is the definition of a jerk, okay? He gets him drunk. You know why he gets him drunk, right? Well, it tells you. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to be with his wife. So he thinks, if I get him drunk enough and I send him home, maybe he'll wake up the next day and think he had sex with his wife. Because remember, the real problem now isn't that he slept with somebody else's wife, but the problem is she's pregnant. And in a few months, well, that cake's coming out of the oven. And if Uriah's been at war for a year or two and hasn't slept with his wife, he's going to figure out that short of the Messiah being born of a virgin, we got a problem here. 
And when it looks like the king, it's a real problem. But he wouldn't even go, do, go home and be with her. You know what he does? He again sleeps in the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. He takes a post. The other men that Uriah had stayed with that night, David's personal guards, most likely were the ones that brought Bathsheba to him. In, in, in case you're not with me yet, I need you to slap yourself, stick your wet finger in the ear of the person in front of you. This is what evil looks like. This is what living in the flesh looks like. This is what it looks like to be so drunk with power and so into your flesh that you get stupid. Because in case you're not clear, sin makes you stupid. Every time. There was only one thing left for David to do. Thinking only of himself now and sparing his public reputation, verse 14 happens. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. <laughs> okay, let that soak in. Not only has he slept several nights in a row with his palace guard to protect David, taking a post, the guy who slept with his wife, not only is he not drunk enough to go home, not only is he such a man of integrity that he won't enjoy his wife, even though the king tells him to, the one who leads him, not only has he done that, but he's about to deliver the letter that says this. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back that he will be killed. In case you're clear, this is what that probably looked like. Joab, the king has sent a letter to you, and here I bring it to you. It probably has a wax stamp on it. He opens the letter while, he's while Uriah is standing there, and he reads it, and he probably looks up something like this. Hey, I have a new task for you. You need to go to the wall. Then pull back so that he'll be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his a messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But, but he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed by Thebes, by a woman who threw a millstone down from the, uh, on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Here's what I want you to tell him. Just tell him that Uriah the Hittite was killed too. Is this gross? I know that you know this story. I know that this story is in flannel graph in your brain. I know that we talk about David being an adulterer. This is worse than the adultery. This is worse. And his general's in on it. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, David said, tell Joab not to be discouraged. The sword devours this one day and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. And he went and took an afternoon nap. I, I made that part up. Is that not a dismissive phrase? This is what evil looks like. This is what it sounds like, in case you're not paying attention. In David's mind, problem solved. He got away with it. Well, except for one little detail. Let's read on, verse 26. 
When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. But when the period of mourning was over, about four hours, I'm kidding, I don't know what it is, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Now, take a breath, because I want you to understand that as, um, as uh, weird that would look today, this guy is a war hero. He was fighting, and he was killed. And as a sign of great honor to this man, is how the people would have seen it, David marries his widow. So the nation would have been going, David is so merciful. Look how he loved Uriah. Look how he loved Iliam, his dad, her dad. Look how wonderful David is. So David actually does something that from the perspective, culturally and contextually, looked like a great move. He marries her. Then she gives birth to a son. But here's the problem. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. And under that you can say, yeah, I bet he was. I bet he was. Verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11 says the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David had now added murder, lying, and not keeping God's law to breaking adultery and wanting another man's wife's commandments. If you're keeping track and you're counting, David has broken at least five of the Ten Commandments that he spent every day studying. This is what it looks like. Now pay attention here. This is what it looks like to be a man of God and decide to take a vacation from submission to him. This is what it looks like to be God's kid, God's called one, his anointed one, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like to choose not to go fully in. This is what it looks like to say, I surrender most. But I have the right because of all the pressure on me and the life that I live, to spend a little time feeding my flesh. Because as I've told you before already in this message, sin makes you stupid. It's ugly, not to mention destructive in every case. As I've quoted before, Spurgeon, the great eight, uh, 19th century preacher, used to say that God will never allow his children to succeed at sin. And it is as true with Adam and Eve and Cain and us as it was for David here in this story. It's about six months later when chapter 12 takes place. David is now married with Bathsheba. She is full-blown pregnant. It probably feels like life is back to normal for Bathsheba and David, although I'm sure she mourned for her husband still some. But David isn't even probably thinking about Bathsheba and Uriah and Iliam when this happens. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in its arms like a baby daughter. I just want you to take a breath for a second. He may not have known who that girl was bathing on the rooftop of the house. He may not have recognized her from the distance. Heck, at 50, I needed to start wearing glasses. But this infers that he probably played with little Bathsheba as she ran around the back palace lot while her dad was with him in the palace. This little girl grew up in his courtyard. 
He raised that little lamb and he grew up with his own children and ate from his own plane and drank, uh, plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in its arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and he killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing really deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to that poor little man, for that poor little man, I don't know his size, but that poor man for the one that he stole, and for having no pity. David obviously thought this was a true story. This wasn't just a parable. He was uh, being brought before him. Nathan was, bring, uh, was bringing a scenario. He wanted to know David's thoughts on it, and he actually wants to do justice, except that what his feelings were didn't reflect justice. You see, the law actually said that if somebody steals somebody else's animal, cattle, it is to be replaced many times over. So what he actually tells Nathan to do is different than what he feels. David wants him dead. David is a moral man who always fights for the little guy. He is furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor lamb for the one he stole. And for having no pity, I want you to take a breath and think about this moment. Then Nathan said to David, what's the next line? You are that man. Wow. As surely as the Lord lives, Nathan vowed, any man, oh, I'm sorry, going back to David. The Lord, the God of Israel, says this. I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and the wives and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? I want to point out the word of the Lord. The written word matters. You can't blow it off. It matters. The word of the Lord. Why have you despised it? You knew it. You knew the word of the Lord. You studied the word of the Lord. For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. And he will go to bed with them in public view. You, you did What you did secretly, I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. This week, my brother sent me a quote from Ravi Zacharias. And it says this. Sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will cost you more than you ever expected to pay, and it will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. That's the problem with sin. And the problem with the way that we look at sin in the church today is we're so busy getting people saved and thinking of, of what God did for us as a heaven and hell thing, we don't think of it in terms of saving us in this life. You see, there's three parts to our salvation. There's salvation into justification. That means being redeemed. That's being born again. That is confessing your sins and being saved at the moment. Many of you did it at 6. Some of you did it at 30. Some of you have done it at 50. But that is acknowledging that you're a sinner and he's the only one that can save you. But there's also sanctification, which isn't just becoming like Jesus. It's him saving you from your flesh. The problem is that we are so good. One of the reasons I like having a church that doesn't dress up on Sundays is it seems fake to me. We should wear what we wear because the truth is we are who we are and we come together as we are because we're supposed to take care of each other. 
The truth is, every one of us in this church this morning struggles with sin. And if you're not struggling with sin, then you have conceded to sin. It is a battle of the flesh. It is a battle with the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We are always being drawn like a dog back to its vomit. We're drawn to that. That is part of the deal. But we don't have to concede. David conceded. When you concede, it costs you more than you ever expected to pay, and it keeps you longer than you ever intended to stay. And of David's life, Warren Wiersbe said this, the sword did not depart from the king's household, and his wives were taken and violated, just as he had taken Bathsheba. Indeed, David paid fourfold for Bathsheba's baby in, in his death, and his sons Ammon and Absalom and Adijah were slain. David's beautiful daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother, and David's concubines were humiliated publicly by Absalom when he captured the kingdom. For the rest of David's lifetime, he experienced one tragedy after another, either in his family or in his kingdom. What a price he paid for those few minutes of passion with his neighbor's wife. The, the, problem, the problem with how we see David is we look at him as the giant killer, or the one who waited out Saul, or the one that God anointed, or we look at him as even the adulterer. But the rest of the story of David's life is tragic because of this moment, because of this second. And some of you who have committed adultery know this or are addicted to porn and got caught. Some of you know this. Maybe you're, you've spent time in jail and you're caught and you're trapped. But I gotta tell you about a, an even bigger danger. And that's for those of us in the church who don't sin big but think we're getting away with it. If your family has a culture of a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit that's not from the Lord, it will destroy your children. Your daughter will never think she's beautiful enough. Your sons will think that there's more. They will grow up thinking the whole world looks at them like that. You don't get away with sin. You see, part of the saving process wasn't just justifying us making us right with him so we could go home to be with him when we die. It was protecting us from the things that will destroy us in this life. And yes, you give up tons in order to be faithful to the Lord. But let me tell you, what you get out of it is so much greater. It's so much greater. Verse 13 of chapter 12, Then David confessed to Nathan, and listen to this, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes. Yes, but David, the Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for this sin. It's what you deserve. That's mercy. You deserve to die because you murdered. And the law requires it, but God has said, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm not going to kill you. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. Doesn't even call her Bathsheba there. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what a drastic thing will, what, what, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him that his child is dead? And when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he's dead. Just as it happened with Uzziah the priest, when the cart became unsettled and the Ark of the Covenant began to fall and all he did was reach out and steady it, God took his life. When David takes God's instructions lightly here, not just Uriah, but the baby dies as well. 
Sin always causes destructive ripples that affect others who are under our care. The divorce rate inside of the church is just as heavy as the divorce rate outside of the church. And I know that when you're going through it, you, you intend in your heart for it not to affect your kids, but it will affect your kids. It does. There is no way that your sin does not affect those around you. Come on, preacher. You're starting to sound like a Baptist. It's not Baptist when it's true. Well, it might be Baptist when it's true. I don't mean to say, never mind. Let me keep moving. The thing I want you to understand here is this isn't a preacher yelling at you. This is me too. I've learned this. Most of you I've been real open about with as a church that when I was in high school and I, I was I was involved in porn. It's how I fed my flesh. Do you know the greatest thing about not being addicted to porn now is? I don't have any secrets to hide. I mean, yes, I know forgiveness and, and, and not being stuck in that and it's better for my marriage. All of those things are really important, but I gotta tell you something. The problem with my sin is it traps me. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you and your spouse are going at it and somebody comes to the door and it's the pastor, hi, can I come in and have coffee with you? You have to stop fighting for a half hour and pretend like you're not fighting. You're laughing because you've been there. This is why you don't want me visiting your home. The, the truth is, it doesn't matter who it is, but you have to pretend like nothing's going on because you don't want anybody to know. Well, imagine if that is a sin that you keep feeding over and over again. That's what sin does. It isn't just about not going to hell. God wants to protect us from the things that will destroy us. One shot of heroin owns you. One checking out the babe next door, taking a bath, leads to you being owned. And you know it. You know it's true. This isn't shocking what happens to David. Sin always causes destructive ripples that affects others. Do you want to know what David was feeling? Fortunately, he wrote Psalm 51 right around this time. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. This is David's prayer written between the time he sleeps with Bathsheba, we think, gets her pregnant, kills her husband, and the time that Nathan comes. This is what he's feeling. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me will be just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Don't banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You get the feeling? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been stuck? And nobody knows your sin but you and God and you know he knows. And you pray this. Just forgive me, God, please, please. I promise never to do it again. I remember sitting in a jacuzzi with one of my high school friends and we were, we were brothers in Christ and we were talking about the struggle with porn, the struggle with lust, and we, were, we actually prayed together in a, in a jacuzzi and asked God to take that desire from us. Now I'm glad he didn't take the desire. What we should have asked for is spirit-led self-control. 
If you get the desire taken away, you're on medication the rest of your life. That's the point. The desire is natural. Temptation is natural. Running from it is supernatural. And we now live in a world and even a church that's beginning to say, if God made you with a desire, you should be able to feed it. You know, thank God for his grace. And you could just, that's not how this works. Not because God's going to cast David in hell. He says your sin has been forgiven, but these are the costs. God isn't going to cast you in hell because you invest in your flesh. It's going to destroy you. It will destroy you. It can't not destroy you. David had seen this firsthand with Saul. He had seen Saul sin and God remove his anointing over him. But I want to tell you the difference between David and Saul. Saul, when he was confronted by Samuel with his sin, said, don't tell the rest of the nation. Remember that? All I ask, that's true. All I ask is you don't tell the people. Don't shame me in front of all of them. Let the nation think we won. But David says, I have sinned against you and your movement against me is just. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I know I'm throwing you around a little bit, Louise, but let's go to 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. This is what it looks like to be God's called one, his child, part of his kingdom, feed your flesh. And the truth is, if your child's God here, if you are God's child here this morning, then you're in one of two places as it relates to this story. You are either like David and Saul, having done the unthinkable. While judging others, think you are given a little more room for your own flesh to play and feel good, feeling like you can get away with it. So you see the very thing that God wants to protect you from is desirable, and you took it. And now, you hope no one finds out or you get caught. Here is my encouragement for you this morning. Run to Jesus like David did. Stop hiding. Pray David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. Wash me from, uh, clean from guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I have recognized my re rebellion. It haunts me night and day. And I want you to understand that because David prayed that before Nathan came, God sent Nathan to deal with his sin. It was an ugly day. The rest of his life is deeply affected, but God forgave his sin. You're either in that camp or you're in the other camp that Paul warned us about in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Verse 12. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let that soak in. Can we go back to that, Louise, verse 12 real quick? I want that to sink in. Because there's a lot of us that sit in churches every week or watch on the internet and go, I'm, I'm not like those people. Praise God I'm not like them. Well, just so you know, they too thought they were not like them. And Paul warns us that if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations of your life are no different than what others experience. God is faithful, and he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. The problem is, honestly, most of us don't want a way out of the temptation. 
We just want forgiveness after we indulge in it. That's the truth of our flesh. So how do we do that? How do we get out of temptation? How do we run from it? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 answers that. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Fellowship with other believers. Commit yourself to pursuing, not just hanging out. Don't just not go to war and check out your neighborhood. Instead, be at war with sin. Be at war with the flesh. Speak truth. Pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Specifically, don't be checking out the women bathing next door. Okay? You don't. That's not a smart move. Avoid the tree that God told you not to eat from. Don't talk to snakes that feed your temptation. It's not okay to ignore God's clear expectations for you. Run from them. The truth is, everybody's tempted. Everybody. And the reason that people give in to temptation is because it feeds our flesh. We want how it feels. Quit pretending it's not desirable. It is. The fruit in the middle of the garden was desirable to make Eve wise. Uh, uh, for whatever reason, Cain wanted to offer the sacrifice he wanted. And God even went to Cain and said, just go back and do the right thing, Cain. You know what I accept. Just go do the right thing. But he wanted what it offered him. And for, uh, for David, David knew what the right thing was when it came to the, moving the ark. But he wanted to put it on a cart. At least he put it on a new cart, Pastor. It was still the wrong thing to do. And David shouldn't be messing with other people's wives. And you know what that sin is for you. You know it. And it's time to stop. Unless you can't really say, I surrender all. I mean, that's really the problem with us, you guys, is, is when we say, I surrender all, we mean that religious pocket of our heart. I, I won't become a Mormon, or I won't be Catholic, or I won't move over here. I surrender all of my religiosity glands to you. That's not what it's saying. He wants all of you. The stuff you like, the stuff you don't like, the stuff you're tempted with, the stuff you're not tempted with. And the fact is, we're not all tempted with the same things. No matter what the Me Too movement says, not every man is a pig looking, looking to sleep with any woman they meet. That's, that's a lie. The, the, the world, even in that, wants us to look like animals that have no self-control glands. The truth is that actually I want to say that for most of you in this room, the most devastating sins in your life, again, are not adultery or pornography. You know those things. Or homosexuality. You know those things are wrong. Uh, drugs, al over alcohol abuse. You know those things are wrong. Most of us, it's overeating. Because we laugh those off as Christians in the Bible Belt. I'll tell you, we can put a chicken spread on. But you, you know what? We're about to, that was not, the, hey, I did a new voice. One vote, one vote for me. Um, we're going to have the agape feast coming up, and some of you have already started cooking for that. That is like gluttony on steroids. Just be the last up there, because everybody else puts too much on their plate that those of us who are left don't get much. We're going to store food away this year. But, but you know what I'm talking about. We laugh it off because it just, it's just a little overweight. It's just a little gluttony. Or gossip. Bless your heart. That's code for moron. I know it, you know it, we've talked about it, it's true. Well, that's Bertha's son, 
He's always been dumb as a hoe handle, bless his heart. That's code for stupid, stupid person. We do that. We, we throw prayer requests around. Well, you need to pray for Julie because Mark's hard to live with. How do you know? Oh, I heard. He thinks he's so funny. Can you imagine living with that kind of lame humor day in and day? You're right. You're right. And her kids, they're on medication. I tell you, it's good that Zach found a fiance who could help him get over his dad's lame sense of humor. Yeah. You're right. We should pray for Julie. After 15 minutes of trashing me. You got an issue? We talk. That's what healthy people do. Well, I don't want to risk that. That's because the good stuff takes risk. It's what we do. That's why he tells us to, to gather together as a flock. We, we, we companionship of those who are believers because we do struggle. The truth is we should share our struggles. The truth is that God has given you people in the family of God that you can actually admit you're tempted with. Not with that person, but share with them that you're tempted to do something else so that they can pray for you and come around you and sometimes put a muzzle on your face. We do that too, you know that? Sometimes you need somebody to be judgmental who loves you enough to be judgmental. And Satan has removed that from the church too. We were talking two weeks ago on a Wednesday night about this, and I, I want to keep throwing this out. We've talked about it before. If I just sent Facebook post this morning that said, we're going to wash feet this morning, what's the last thing most of you would have done as you left home? Wash your feet. Why? Because you don't want people to know your feet stink. We all know your feet stink, and that's the problem with the church. We put on good clothes, we wash our feet knowing that they stink. The truth is, foot washing is about us taking care of each other. It's about us ministering to each other. It's about saying, I'm going to let you smell my feet as long as you help me clean them. And I'm not sure who has the worst task, the foot cleaner or the foot cleanee. But the truth is, that's what the church does. And Satan has removed us from the opportunity that we have to actually take care of each other. David had nobody... If Nathan would have been hanging out with David more, he'd have pinned him to the ground, sat on his chest, and said, I am not letting you kill her husband. I am not letting you sleep with her. That is one of your most faithful men's little girls. I know, I bought her a Christmas gift. I know, Christmas wasn't back then, but just play with me. This dude knew her, and then he knew her, because he wanted her. And that's wrong. He's just a man. Do you know that 70% of leaders end up committing adultery? Do you know that? Who cares? We are the children of God inhabited by the Holy Spirit who is the power of the resurrection that doesn't take away the urge to sin but gives us the power to walk away from sin. And I got to tell you, the rest of 2 Samuel is kind of depressing because of what he did right here for a few moments. And yes, God forgave him, but boy, I tell you what, the rest of his family did not. And it causes great pain. You want to know what it feels like to be forgiven, though? Psalm 32. This was written by David after he's told by Nathan that he's forgiven. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience are forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Have you ever felt that? that knot in your stomach. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, 
finally I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and, forg and he forgave me. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. I'm going to jump off there for now. Man, that's your God. His grace is sufficient even for your foolishness after you were saved. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. He washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle, and he worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the place and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let him live. But why should I fast when he's dead? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. Okay, I want you to pause for just a second. I want you to, I want you to take a breath because I want you to see what God is about to do. If you have committed adultery, if your family has blown up, if you are on marriage number 32 because of your sin, if you have invested most of your life in relationships that don't honor the Lord and you are finding yourself in a place of, of death like David was, listen to this. Verse 24, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. Oh, that's right. That's Bathsheba's boy. Remember that he's married to Abigail and a bunch of other women. God chose this boy, but it goes better farther than that. The Lord loved Solomon, and he sent word through Nathan the prophet that they shall name him Jedidiah, which is not a southern name, only southern Israel, just so you know. Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord commanded. You want to know how gracious your God is? You want to know how awesome our God is? How merciful? Not only of all the seven or eight wives that David has, does God pick David's uh, adulterous wife's child to be the next king, but he changes his name from the human name Solomon to the God name loved by God. And we are in a church, not Carpenter's Way, but in a Southern Baptist convention that isn't even sure that if you've been divorced, you can be a deacon again. You see, I want you to understand that the church is less gracious and forgiving than God. Run to him. Well, what will people think? Who cares? Maybe it's your task in life, after you screw up, to stand in the face of legalistic, self-righteous Christians and say, I am what it looks like to have fallen and am now redeemed. Maybe that's your task, and it's a worthy task. I beg you, if you aren't that person and haven't done this, not to, not to want that role. It's not a good role. The baby still died. But if you have been in that role, His grace is still sufficient for you. It doesn't matter how you've screwed up, how many affairs you've had, how many marriages, His grace is sufficient. It doesn't matter if you are full-blown gay or full-blown hetero. God will redeem you from that and make you His child, and your name will be Jesus' son. And the church continues to label people. David's life is a mess after this, but not his eternal life. But he is what it looks like to be redeemed. And Solomon is what it looks like to be redeemed. We still call him Solomon when we should be calling him Jedediah. Loved one by God. 
If you're like David, your life and ministry are not over. Run to him and bask in his mercy. Bask in his grace. Don't let Satan keep your sin before you if you have confessed. But his mercy, love, and grace are for you. You have not outsinned his love and his plans and his, mercy for, uh, and his mercy for you. One more thing. I have known, I've been in ministry now 33 years. I have sat with some pretty gnarly sinners. I have prayed with people that are giving their life to Christ. And when they leave, I think to myself, wow. But I have never met anybody who got a woman pregnant and murdered her husband. Some of you are thinking, you need to spend more time in jail. Okay, I've just never met that kind of guy. But even for that guy or woman, I want you to know that this is what it looks like for you if you run to God. History will hail you as God's merciful leader. And here's the cool thing. As we talk about God, as we talk about David, a man after God's heart, I want you to know that when God labeled him that, he was thinking of this too. How could God call him a man after his own heart if he would do this? I don't know. How could he call you his child when you do what you do? We are the children of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, secured by the power of the Holy Spirit, chosen by the Father before the time began, and we are sealed unto eternity by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't screw it up. And if you have, run back because you still haven't screwed it up. His grace is sufficient. I have to end because time is over and i got to go teach a new members class. And that's super important. But I want to tell you this. The end of this chapter is they basically go back to war and they finish off, they finish off their enemies. Why is that interesting to me in this chapter? Um, because life goes on. If you are David with Bathsheba and you killed Uriah and your child has died, you can't stop. That's not how this works. I'm not here shaming you this morning. I'm telling you that God's love for you is greater than you could ever possibly fathom. Get back in the game. If your kids have seen you do this, confess your sins to them. Well, that would be embarrassing. Your sin's embarrassing. You want to protect them? Tell them the truth. They don't need to know the nitty-gritty details, but they need you to know why you haven't been the man or woman God called you to be. Just lay it out. That's humiliating. So is sin. How badly do you want to help your kids avoid what you've been through? There's only two ways you learn in life. The wisdom of others and consequences from the mistakes you've made. There's no other way. You, if you have been David, didn't learn from the wisdom of others. Fight for your kids by telling them wisdom. Protect them. If, if you haven't, be careful. The fact that you're celebrating and you haven't means that Satan has already weaseled his way into your heart. Our sin is just as great as David's. It's just a little more politically correct. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for 1 John 1, 9 that says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. I'm going to be quiet here for a moment because I believe that there are people in this room right now that need to confess sin. I'm not asking you to walk forward or raise your hand or look at me. I'm asking you to confess your sin to God. I do not want to be a distraction. Maybe it's an attitude or it's porn or it is adultery. 
as your pastor, I'm begging you today, confess your sin. For those who are walking faithfully, Father, I pray that they would be aware that they're only a decision away from bad choices, that they need to commit themselves to fighting for righteousness, to living righteously, and the fellowship of the saints, lest we fall. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. Thanks for being here this morning.